0: This is Reaction. Movements, Moments, and Monsters of the Reactionary Right. Episode 3 The Pinkertons, Part 3 Legitimate Violence. After the events at Homestead, the Pinkerton agency's reputation for brutally suppressing labor movements was finally catching up to them. In areas where the Pinkertons had played a high profile role, working on behalf of industrialists, local cultures of resentment toward the agency sprung up. Folk songs detailed the events from the perspective of the working class, such as Father Was Killed by the Pinkerton Men, which was based on the Homestead strike. Written by William Delaney, the song goes. "'Twas in a Pennsylvania town not very long ago. Men struck against reduction of their pay. Their millionaire employer with a philanthropic show had closed the works till starved they would obey. They fought for home and right to live where they had toiled so long, but ere the sun had set, some were laid low. Their hearts now sadly grieving by that sad and bitter wrong, God help them, for it was a cruel blow." The song goes on to criticize the politicians who failed to protect the strikers, the way they were treated like cattle and sent to an early grave. There's a rich tradition of labor folk songs, and they kept the events of the past fresh in the minds of the communities who survived clashes with the Pinkertons. The agency had become synonymous with capitalist greed. During the congressional hearings that led to the 1893 Anti-Pinkerton Act, a member of the Senate committee asked a union representative, in your association with workmen, have you been led to feel that they have a good or bad opinion of the so-called detectives furnished by the agencies in Chicago? The union man answered, The English language is inadequate to express the hate of the men in regard to them. Terence Powderly, leader of the Knights of Labor, also testified, arguing that, If Pinkerton has the right to arm men to engage in strikes, the strikers have the right to meet them with arms in their hands and to such extremities we should not be driven. I think that kind of logic, that the people have the right to meet armed force with armed resistance, is really foreign to us today, for reasons I'll get into a little later. There were also plenty of congressional testimonies from those in industry who tried to justify the need for forces like the Pinkertons to maintain order among an agitated, and often foreign, workforce. A construction superintendent for the Illinois Steel Company laid bare the ethnic tensions that animated many of the clashes between labor and capital, testifying that, "...I attributed it to the restless disposition of our employees there, mostly foreign, Polish, and Bohemians. I think that 90% of the employees were Polish. Naturally restless, and a desire for higher wages led them to combine among themselves for the purpose of enforcing higher wages." This was a popular sentiment of the time. An editorial reporting on the congressional hearings read, If foreigners come here to break our laws, we had better punish them first and then send them back from whence they came. The president of the Social Science Association, H.L. Wayland, wrote in the American Journal of Politics that formerly pastoral and upstanding mining and mill towns had been overrun with Italians and Poles, ignorant, superstitious anarchists addicted to assassination. This connection between criminality and ethnic status underpins so much of the debate on the use of force against striking workers. European immigrants were seen as the agitators in these conflicts. They brought dangerous ideas about communism and anarchism to an otherwise happy and productive workforce, riling up American-born laborers with demands for exorbitant wages. If you heard the excerpts from Alan Pinkerton's book about the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 on the Patreon feed, you'll also know how closely he tied intelligence versus ignorance to these classes of workers. The intelligent, hardworking, honest laborer knew better than to fall for the tricks of ignorant, lazy, communistic foreigners looking to cause trouble. And so, the failure of the state wasn't just their unwillingness to suppress strikers but in letting undesirables into the country in the first place. As Wayland wrote, The duty of the government to interfere for the restriction of immigration is all the more pressing from the fact that excessive and indiscriminate immigration is the direct result of measures adopted by the government. Ten years later, Congress would pass the Anarchist Exclusion Act of 1903, after President William McKinley was assassinated by a second-generation Polish anarchist. But that was just the beginning. Throughout the 20th century, Congress created several laws meant to ban foreign radicals from the country. In 1917, Congress passed the Literacy Act, which required literacy tests for new immigrants, but it also included a laundry list of so-called undesirables who would be barred from entering the country, such as convicts, epileptics, alcoholics, imbeciles, paupers, those with constitutional psychopathic inferiority. Polygamists, prostitutes, and political radicals. To this day, the government reserves the right to ban anarchists and communists from immigrating to the United States. But let's get back to the congressional investigation after Homestead. In their testimonies, law enforcement officers were divided in their support for Pinkerton contractors. While some welcomed the auxiliary support, others felt that they only made the task of enforcing the law more difficult due to their extreme tactics and the feelings of resentment they ignited. The House and Senate agreed that the Pinkertons did more harm than good in these conflicts. They exacerbated tensions and stepped on the toes of legitimate law enforcement. And so they passed the 1893 Anti-Pinkerton Act, which prohibited the government from hiring Pinkertons or agents from similar organizations most labor organizations celebrated what seemed like a victory against the true foes of the working class, but others were skeptical. As one labor periodical at the time put it, what fools these mortals be? Organized labor is congratulating itself over the downfall of Pinkertonism at Homestead and calls it one of labor's greatest victories. Can people not see that the great lesson taught at Homestead is that the militia will abundantly protect the capitalist? and there is no use for the Pinkertons when the state will furnish the militia free? Better to fight Pinkertons, whom all people despise, than to fight the militia with public sympathy on their side. Labor activist Eugene Debs agreed, preferring Pinkertons to state forces. He said that court injunctions were kinder to the capitalist class than a private army could ever be, that the courts were, as he put it, far more deadly to trade unions and that they operate noiselessly and with unerring precision. While the Pinkertons incited public backlash and drew attention to the injustices suffered by labor, the judicial system could quietly kneecap it. But it wasn't sufficient for the government to simply regulate immigration and send in state militias to crush strikes. A new kind of government approach was gaining steam— bureaucratic managerialism. In addition to a modern police force, the state began instituting scientific approaches to population control, public schooling, penitentiaries and reformatories, mental asylums, and public hospitals. These would be combined with reforms to corporations, legislation to limit the powers of business entities and ensure greater workers' and consumers' rights. There was a real desire to fight what many saw as an increasingly feudalist relationship between the working and capitalist classes. The paternalism of these reforms was overt. These institutions were necessary to ensure that workers knew their proper place in a capitalist class-based society. Combined with reformers like Jane Addams Hull House and John Dewey's Laboratory School, American society could replace the cruelty of the Victorian era with a paternalistic welfare state. On the other hand, recent court rulings had determined that corporations had legal standing under the 14th Amendment. Just like any individual citizen, corporations had the right to be protected by the state. And in the court of public opinion, the idea that corporate entities could hire a private army was anathema to the sovereignty of the state, and a grave threat to the republic. If an official police officer, state militia man, or army soldier were to fire into a crowd of people exercising their right to free speech, the state could hold them accountable—in theory, anyway. Private mercenaries, however, were answerable to no one. The Pinkertons began as a private force to fill in the gaps left by a weak law enforcement apparatus. By the 20th century, they were being replaced by the institutions that now make up the majority of the power of the state. This is part of the reason why Terence Powderly's logic that working people had the right to meet armed forces with armed resistance is a bit foreign to us. It's now a mostly accepted fact that, in the U.S. anyway, only the government has the right to use physical force in a conflict. The German sociologist Max Weber called this the monopoly on legitimate violence. Civilians have the right to protect themselves and their property, but only in very specific ways that the state decides are legitimate. The military and the police are only accountable to their own institutions and official justice systems protests are only acceptable when they're peaceful. That tension that I described in part one of the Pinkertons being caught in the gray area between defenders of capital and extensions of the government has dissolved. Now, the state does both. Homestead, the Pinkerton Agency tried to salvage its reputation in the best way it knew how—propaganda in the pages of dime novels and magazines. To shift attention away from their now wildly unpopular work for industrialists, they retold the stories of frontier lawlessness, chasing scoundrels and bank robbers. They even pulled out the old canard of Alan Pinkerton thwarting the Baltimore plot, plastering their advertising with images of Lincoln and Pinkerton together. They gave McClure's magazine access to their company archives, and the magazine published a series of articles praising the Pinkertons for their fine detective work. But it was too little, too late. The public continued to associate the Pinkertons with the bloody battle at Homestead. In the stories told about the Molly Maguires, about Haymarket, about the long strike and the Homestead strike, The Pinkertons weren't the nation's last hope in the fight against murderous conspirators, anarchists, and foreign roustabouts. They were the villains. Things only got worse for the Pinkertons' legacy. In 1907, Morris Friedman published his tell-all book, The Pinkerton Labor Spy. Friedman had worked for the agency as a stenographer under our old friend James McParland. In his book, He claimed that the Pinkertons overstated their pursuit of bandits and thieves and that the majority of their work was in labor espionage. He charged that McParlin had kept the profits from his work off the books and that agents' daily reports were reworked to exaggerate the violent threats that unionizers posed. Friedman even reported that McParlin would find mine owners who were on good terms with their employees and manufacture criminal conspiracies among the workforce to justify hiring Pinkertons to infiltrate them. The book was published shortly after the assassination of Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg. The trial of Stunenberg's alleged assassin Harry Orchard was highly publicized. After the assassination, Orchard was interrogated by none other than James McParlin. In his confession, he claimed that Bill Haywood, who was then General Secretary of the Western Federation of Miners and another of the labor activists who was inspired by Haymarket, that Haywood had hired him to carry out the act as well as other acts of violence over the years. But unlike with the Molly Maguires and Haymarket trials, the involvement of private detectives cast doubt on the prosecution. There was a new public framing of spying as deceitful and morally corrupt. Haywood was acquitted, and Orchard was sentenced to death. As if Friedman's damning expose wasn't enough, former Pinkerton Charles Seringo published his own account in Two Evilisms. Pinkertonism and Anarchism. Unlike Friedman, Siringo was no friend to labor, hence the title. In fact, he had joined the agency after witnessing the Haymarket affair. He had admired the work the Pinkertons did, writing, I concluded the best way to help in the righteous cause was to join in that, to my ignorant mind, model institution, Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. But little did I dream that I was entering a school for the making of anarchists and a disgrace to an enlightened age. As an agent, he operated undercover from Alaska to Mexico City and made more than a hundred arrests in his time among robbers and agitators. But later in life, Seringo came to believe that his work for the Pinkertons had done more harm than good. Though the agency tried to suppress several of his works, he successfully published two evilisms in 1915, which charged that the Pinkertons used unlawful tactics and unscrupulous business practices, that they hired men of low moral character, many of them non-U.S. citizens, which the Pinkertons had always insisted was against their policy. Siringo corroborated Friedman's account that the agency cooked the books and doctored reports, even accusing Pinkertons of fabricating their conversations with Haymarket anarchist Albert Parsons, evidence that directly led to his execution. In his book, Siringo wrote, The false reports written about anarchists, as told to me by the writers themselves, would make a decent man's blood boil. The fact that he did nothing to hide his hatred of anarchist labor leaders made his account even more compelling. But the final nail in the coffin of Pinkerton labor espionage came with the 1936 La Follette Committee. This was the most comprehensive investigation of the suppression of labor movements yet, and while it didn't achieve all of the legislative reforms that some of the committee members wanted, it made the public angry enough that the Pinkertons withdrew from nearly all spying and strike breaking activities. By then, with World War II just around the corner, private security firms became associated with the police states under Hitler and Mussolini. Robert Pinkerton, Allen's great grandson, was called before the committee. And he testified that the agency had been paid nearly $2 million for espionage and strike breaking in recent years, with their largest customer being General Motors. More than 300 Pinkerton agents were actively infiltrating the United Auto Workers Union at the time. Robert claimed that he had Pinkerton spies in nearly every union in the country. Time magazine reported evidence that the Pinkertons had deliberately skirted state and federal laws that prohibited the use of private firms. The Senate committee determined that rampant labor spying violated workers' rights. The committee's final report concluded, Not only is the worker's freedom of association nullified by employer spies, but his freedom of action, of speech and assembly, is completely destroyed. Fear harries his every footstep. Caution muffles his words. He is in no sense any longer a free American. In a constitutional sense, his very position reflects the mockery and contempt which those who demand constitutional rights for themselves deny to others. In 1937, Robert Pinkerton publicly vowed that the agency would no longer engage in labor espionage and strike-breaking. But other forces began to fill the vacuum they left behind. Industrialists like Henry Ford began directly employing his own investigators and goon squads. The FBI under J Edgar Hoover pursued criminal activity using many of the tactics developed by the Pinkerton agency: infiltration, misinformation, entrapment, agents provocateur, paramilitary violence, and of course, propaganda. In popular culture, the hard-boiled detective replaced the earlier tropes. Rather than an upstanding gentleman of honor, the new detective navigated moral ambiguity and corruption in the seedy underbelly of society. They made their own rules and did what it took to get the job done. The Pinkertons lived on in the public imagination, though, making appearances in James Bond novels and spaghetti westerns. Their name continued to be associated with frontier justice and strike-breaking, and even recently, the Pinkertons played the role of the villain in the video game Red Dead Redemption. The Pinkertons sued Rockstar Games for the use of the company's trademark, alleging that the game would tarnish their reputation. In the event that the Pinkertons sue me, my legal defense fund will be hosted at patreon.com slash reaction podcast. But by the 40s, the reality of their work now consisted of protection services and even international work as secret police in Spain, Russia, and Honduras. During World War II, Pinkertons were hired to guard war supply plants. They supplied security guards to the World's Fair in New York in 1964. In 1965, they changed the name to Pinkertons, Inc., fully reflecting the shift from detective work to security services. In 1967, the company went public and came under the leadership of Edward Bednars. He was the first non-family member to head the agency. Pinkertons, Inc. was bought by and merged with various corporate entities throughout the 80s and 90s. Under the leadership of Thomas Wathan in 1988, the Pinkertons shifted away from armed security, and by 1990, less than 2% of their guards carried guns. As Wathen told Forbes magazine, I don't like guns, dogs, or liability. The company again began to diversify, providing its clients with investigative services, such as conducting employee background checks and inspecting workers' compensation cases. In 1999, Pinkerton Inc. was purchased by the Swedish security conglomerate Securitas AB. It still uses the Pinkerton name and logo, the wide-open eye with the words, We never sleep. It's currently headquartered in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Though the 20th century generally saw the Pinkertons morph into providing general security services for corporations, the public fear of crime and political protest in the 60s and 70s created new employment opportunities with state and federal government agencies. By rights, this should have violated the 1893 Anti-Pinkerton Act, and in 1963, members of Congress proposed a repeal of the law. It passed the Senate, but failed in the House of Representatives. But Congress ultimately concluded that the Anti-Pinkerton Act didn't regulate security services in general, but labor disputes in particular. The meaning of the law was reinterpreted in a way that allowed the government to contract with Pinkertons and other agencies. Then, in 1977, the question of the APA was brought before the courts to decide if the government could legally contract with Equifax to gain information about employees. The plaintiff argued that Equifax was similar to the Pinkerton detectives because it used similar investigative techniques. But the courts decided that several factors had changed enough that the 1893 law didn't apply. For one, The relationships among workers, employers, and the state had changed significantly. Also, Pinkerton, Inc. was an entirely different animal from the Pinkertons of the 1890s. And Equifax itself was nothing like that earlier iteration of detective agencies. Specifically, their decision read, An organization is not similar to the Pinkerton detective agency unless it offers quasi-military armed forces for hire. Such a ruling would seem to suggest that hiring private military services is still prohibited under the Anti-Pinkerton Act. And yet, we know very well that the United States government continues to contract with private military services, most infamously Academy, formerly known as G Services, and before that, Blackwater. These agencies provide a wide array of services, from law enforcement training to supplemental armed forces in military combat zones. They often employ former military special operatives and walk a fine line between legal government contractors and illegal mercenary armies. In 2007, Brian X. Scott filed a complaint with the Government Accountability Office, arguing that the military's use of private contractors is against America's core values and that the practice violates the Anti-Pinkerton Act. The complaint eventually led to a federal court issuing a temporary order that stopped the military from awarding a contract to Blackwater for services in Iraq. But ultimately, the court dismissed the claim on the grounds that the plaintiff was not an interested party, and Blackwater won the contract. Brian Scott was not competing with Blackwater for the contract and thus had no standing to sue. As a result, the court didn't have to determine whether or not such contracts violate the APA. As far as I can tell, the courts haven't had to address the question since. Historian Stephen Paul O'Hara argues that the Pinkerton Detective Agency was pivotal in the formation of American monopoly capitalism. In his book, Inventing the Pinkertons, he writes, Pinkerton agents held the power to define criminality. Even when they were not deputized, they still seemed to carry the weight of official authority. The Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania and anarchist conspiracies in Chicago seemed to exist because undercover agents said they exist. This ability to not only define criminality but to create it gave the Pinkertons incredible power in the gray zones of law and order in which they operated. At a time when law enforcement lacked the centralization and sophistication of the 20th century, The agency could shape in real time the forms of American policing that would define the criminal justice system for years to come. O'Hara writes, between 1870 and 1937, they were the most visible element of capital's transformation and domination. They were the power and violence of capitalism at its most naked. If there were a single chattel principle to 19th century industrialization, it would be this. Industrialists had the power to kill their workers. Dangerous working conditions, starvation wages, the testimony of detectives, or the force of hired gunmen were all symbols of this power. O'Hara shares a quote that's often attributed to the rich railroad magnate Jay Gould, who had contracted with Pinkerton's during a strike in 1885, that he could hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. The power to hire one half of the working class to kill the other half This was the power the Pinkertons granted to the great industrialists of the Gilded Age. That legacy is still visible in various forms today. Whether it's municipal police killing civilians for petty crimes, or military contractors killing Iraqis in the name of American imperialism, the private detective has left an indelible mark on the world. And it all started with a Scottish immigrant who happened upon a group of counterfeiters in the woods of Illinois. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at reactionpodcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time...